Thank you for joining us today. At ResLife, our mission is to develop committed followers of Jesus Christ to reach the world. Our content is created to equip and empower you in God's purpose. We hope you enjoy this message. Today, we're going to continue talking on the subject of faith. And one of the things that, that uh, I'm very, very cognizant of is, is that there are so many new people. You know, during this, this uh, pandemic, our, our numbers have really, really jumped. Uh, we're probably ministering to 30% more people than we were 12 months ago. Uh, a lot of, much, much of that is, is online, but I mean, it's, it's, those, those, are, those are real numbers. And so there's so many people that, that do not know some of the things that we've been talking about. And then there's the other side of this, that faith doesn't come by having heard. It comes by hearing. In other words, we need to hear things again and again and again. Uh, the apostle Peter writes, and he says, you know, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to keep on reminding you. Uh, the basic truths, it was as John Wooden, the uh, great uh, basketball coach, uh, he would start every year with these, these top, top-notch uh, basketball players, and he would say, uh, this is how you put on your socks, and this is how you tie your shoes. And he would just go back to the basics. You know? And when it comes to our faith, we need to keep going back to the basics. It, sometimes people are looking for some deep new revelation, but it is the basics right, that we live our life with. It is the very basics. So we're going to uh, jump back here in faith. And, and last week, uh, I had managed to get to page seven. And I was going to keep going this week, but I put together an introduction. In last service, I didn't get through the introduction to the page seven. So here we go. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So without faith, you cannot please God or you cannot receive anything from God except by faith. Everything in the kingdom of God works by faith. In 1 Timothy 6, 12. It says to fight the good fight of faith. Because a lot of people, when they think of faith, they think it is just things that you mentally assent to, that you agree with, and that's your faith. But Bible faith is not just having something in your head. It's having it in your heart to the degree that it changes your outward actions. It changes the way that you live. Right? So the Bible says to fight the good fight of faith. Christianity is not passive. It's active. Right? And the Christian life is a fight from the womb to the tomb. In other words, you never get done. There's, there's never a point where you just put your Christian life on cruise. You know, as I said before, even a dead fish can go downstream. You know, when, when, you, when you turn your faith off and you get passive, you're going to be going backwards. 2 Thessalonians 1.3 says that your faith grows exceedingly. And our faith needs to keep on growing. It says this in Romans 1. It says it's from faith to faith. And, and I like to just say it this way. The faith you begin with is not enough to take you to the end. 
Right? For you and I to fulfill God's destiny, we go from faith to faith. Right? Where you start, that's great for where you are, but that's not going to take you all the way to the finish line. Second Peter 1.3 says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What so many of us believe is we believe that we go to God and we get God to do things, right? That, that faith moves God, but faith does not move God, right? He has already given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, right? What faith does is it receives what God has already provided, but faith does not get God to do anything. Uh, you might have a relative, and let's just say it's your Uncle Ken. And uh, you say, God, save Uncle Ken. Well, what does that mean? Because God's already done everything that's needed for Uncle Ken to get saved. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus bore his sin. Jesus triumphed over death. Everything's already done. And we think that, God, that faith makes God do something. You know, faith receives what God has already done. <clears throat> and here's the other thing that's really important. At least this has helped me, and I believe it'll help you. What this says is that we are not coming from a position of defeat, trying to get to a place of victory. We start at a place of victory, right? It's like in, in, in war, what you want is you want to be on the high ground, right? And then the enemy is coming, trying to attack you, but you're on the high ground. But what most Christians do in their spiritual life, they think that they're at the bottom of the hill and they're trying to get to the top of the hill. But he has already provided for you all things that pertain to life, your natural life, and godliness, your spiritual life. So let me put it this way. You are not the sick who's trying to get healed. You're on top of the hill. You are the healed, but the devil's trying to get you sick. You are not the depressed who's trying to get to a place of joy and victory. No, you are the person who's already have joy, who already has peace, who already has purpose, who the devil is trying to bring down. You start from a place of victory. You start up on top because he has provided all things that pertain to life and godliness. So what we need to do is receive by faith the supply that God has already provided. Romans chapter one, verse 16. It says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. <clears throat> the Jew first and also the Greek. Now, notice the gospel is the power. Now, what a lot of times people think is they think that prayer is the power. But it's not. In worship and praise, I believe in worship and praise, but worship and praise is not the power. The gospel the good news about what Jesus did in his death, burial, and resurrection, that's the gospel. It is the power of God. 
So what that means in a practical sense to you and me is this. The same power that was present in the event as Jesus was on the cross, as he shed his blood, as he was buried, as he defeated death, sin, and the devil, the same power that was present in the event is released when you believe the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, some of you will recognize this if, if you, particularly if you come from uh, certain denominational backgrounds. But uh, there is a study Bible called the Schofield Study Bible. And uh, Dr. Schofield probably promoted extreme dispensationalism more than anyone. Now you say, what does that mean? Um, and, and for our context today, what that means is he taught that there was an early church and then there's a late church. God did things in the early church, but then God started to treat mankind differently and he stopped doing those things. Now, some people will say that happened when the last apostle died. You know, I can kind of picture that John, he's old, you know, he's, he's about a hundred years old when he dies and they just got him sitting in a chair and they have a healing line and he just put his hand on people and they, they get healed and they get healed. And then John dies and they go home. God stopped. No more miracles. John's dead. Other groups will say, well, when we got the canon of scripture, then God stopped doing things. But the Bible says, for example, in Jude, the first chapter, the third verse, right? He says to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all delivered to the saints. There, there is no verse in the Bible, none that says that God used to do things and now he doesn't do things. But that's what dispensationalism taught, right? That God began doing things different. The Bible says the faith was delivered once and for all. What we had in the first century is for the 21st century, right? So Dr. Schofield, in his study Bible, because it's interesting because he's this promoter of dispensationalism, um, but he actually argues against himself, right? This is his notes on the word salvation in, he, in uh, Romans 1.16. The Hebrew and Greek words of salvation imply the ideas of deliverance, safety, preservation, healing, soundness. Salvation is the great inclusive word of the gospel, gathering into itself all of the redemptive acts and processes, justification, redemption, grace, propitiation, imputation, forgiveness, sanctification, and glorification. Now, what he's saying is this, is that word when it says salvation, Salvation, it does not just mean die and go to heaven. Now, it means that, but that's not all it means. I mean, it means safety and preservation and healing and deliverance and soundness, soundness in your mind, soundness in your body, soundness in your family, right? So that's all included in the gospel. Again, Romans 3, verse 27, but by the law of faith. The law of faith. I mentioned this last week that in a lot of people's mind, God is up in heaven. He's got this big desk and he's got this stack of requests. And he looks at your request and it says, prayer for healing. And you say, oh, but God looks at this, but, but you know what? They didn't pray much. They skipped church. No, they don't get it. Okay. Oh, they, 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 they need a new job. Oh, but they lusted last week. No way. Okay. 
And God is looking at every one of the requests and he's evaluating how you've behaved and then says yes or says no to your request. But the Bible tells us that you are saved by grace through faith. And grace literally means what you do not deserve. You don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve anything. And it's not based on our behavior. The Bible says, not of works, least anyone should boast. So we are not saved and we don't receive from God based on works. It's by grace, what we don't deserve, through faith. Now, the Bible says it's the law of faith. In other words, it works the same every single time. We all accept this in the natural realm, that God has placed laws in the natural realm. But God has also placed laws in the spiritual realm. Now, if uh, you had a brick and you dropped it and it fell to the ground 99% of the time, then gravity would not be a law. It would be a phenomenon. But because it works 100% of the time, it's a law. Now, the same thing is true in the spiritual realm. Right? When there's a spiritual law, it works every single time. When there's a plane crash and the Federal Aviation Association shows up and they begin to invest, investigate, I'm going to tell you what they never, never, they have not decided one time of all the plane crashes that we've had. They have never said gravity spiked. Gravity spiked and that's why. That's why that plane crashed. Never happened. Why? Because gravity is a law. Right? Now, the same thing is true spiritually, but we think of all sorts of crazy things in the spiritual realm. Right? We, 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 we don't understand that there are laws concerning faith. And that literally, and I know this will bother you, but it's all right, it's in the Bible. God has limited himself. Right? You and I, we could never limit God. We could never decide what, tell God what to do, but he has limited himself. In Psalms 133 and verse two, he said, you magnified your word above all your name. So people say, you never know what God's going to do. Like God's schizophrenic, that one day he'll have the sun rise in the West. No, no, you know what God's going to do. He's going to do what he said he would do. In, uh, Psalms 89, he said, my covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that's gone forth out of my lips. God is going to do what he said that he would do. In fact, in Hebrews 6, God is trying to give us confidence in his word, in what he has said. So it says this in the 17th verse, thus God determined to show more abundantly the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. So God wants us to be able to trust what he says. And it says that he confirmed it by an oath. He confirmed it by an oath. How many of you have ever heard somebody say, God is my witness? They're like, they're like saying, man, I, I swear, this is, this is true. You know, in court, they used to have you put your hand on a Bible. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And I was supposed to be like, okay, we can, we can have confidence in what this person is saying. So the Bible says that God confirmed that he would do what he said he would do with an oath. 
So the next verse says, so by two immutable things. Number one, it's impossible for God to lie. Number one. And then he basically said, so help myself. Instead of saying, so help me God, because there was nobody greater to swear by, the Bible says he swore by himself. He said, if I don't do what I said I would do, I am not God. And he can't lie. So he said, well, you can trust, you can put your confidence in what God has said. So with that said, we're going to jump over to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis, the book of beginnings. 2,000 years of human history, one book. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Uh, let me just take a second here. When, when it says us, theologians have talked about this for a long time. Some say the us is it's God and the angels. But there's, there's no scripture that angels had anything to do with creation in any way. And then secondly, he said, in our image, we're created in the image of God. We are not created in the image of angels, right? According to our likeness. So we're in God's image and God's likeness. And by the way, that is what gives a human being dignity and value. The fact that every man and every woman, it says he created the male and female. He created them in his image and in his likeness. Every man every woman. We have value. We have dignity because we are created in the likeness and in the image of God. Right? That's why an unborn child has value because they are in the likeness and the image of God. He said, according to our likeness, our image, and let them have dominion. Now, this is, this, is, this, this is so important. You were not created to be a doormat. God created man and woman to have dominion. And he mentions here the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Uh, God mentions uh, in the Psalms, he says, but the earth he has given to the children of men. Man was created in God's likeness to have dominion. Now, notice the way that God used that authority and dominion that he had when he created the earth. The way he created the earth was simply to say, let there be. God spoke Hebrews 6 says that we understand that the words were framed by the, the worlds were framed by the word of God. He spoke things into existence. We can say this, the parent force of everything in this universe is words. They were created by words. And by the way, they respond to words. They were created by words and they respond to words. The way that God used used his authority or his dominion is the same way that man is supposed to. Because God took his authority, his dominion, and gave it to man. In Genesis 2, 19, it says that God formed every beast of the field, the birds of the air, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would call or name them. 
And whatever Adam called or named each creature, that was its name. He uses his dominion. He begins to call different animals, certain things. And whatever he called them, that was what they were. And by the way, today, you and I are supposed to call our situation. We're we're supposed to speak to the mountain, to the problem, to the giant, to the situation. You realize Jesus, he spoke to trees. He spoke to the wind and the waves. He spoke to sickness and disease. He spoke to demons. He spoke to storms. The Bible says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love it will eat the fruit thereof. You know, you can, uh, how do I say this? So often what we are is we are hung by the tongue. The very words that we speak, the Bible says they produce life or they produce death. They can produce fear and depression and defeat and addiction. The words that we say, and they can bring deliverance. They can bring victory. In Genesis 2 and 15, the Lord took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to tend, to guard, and to keep it. He's there to tend, to guard, and to keep. Who is he guarding it from? Who is he to keep out? Well, the answer is that is the devil. Again, Psalms 115 says the heavens, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. He gave Adam and Eve dominion. They named the animals. He says, I've given the earth to the children of men. Now, what happened to that authority? Well, when the devil came, what Adam was supposed to do was he was supposed to use his authority to kick the devil out, to keep him out. I mean, realize that's what Jesus did in the desert. When When the devil showed up, And the devil said, turn these stones to bread. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The devil then said, and then Jesus said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And then the devil said, and then Jesus said. How was he using his authority? How was he using his dominion? He used it by speaking words. The Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. Now, that is what Jesus did. He resisted him. He resisted him with words. And notice he goes about seeking whom he may devour. The devil cannot just devour anybody. He devours ignorant people. He devours passive people. But the Bible says what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to be active and you're supposed to resist him steadfast in the faith. Acts 10, 38 says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. who went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. Now, notice all the people that Jesus healed, their sickness or disease ultimately came back to the fact that the devil had come into the world. So often we think that God is the author of everything that shows up, but that is not true at all. Now, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. 
And the Bible says in verse five, then the devil taking him up into a high mountain shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, to Jesus, all this authority I will give you. All this authority I will give you and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whomsoever I wish. Now, if the devil's lying, there's no temptation. So the devil said, all the authority and the glory of the earth has been given to me and I can pass it on to whoever I want to. Now, who gave it to Adam? Excuse me, to uh, the devil? Adam is the answer. Now, most people today, even Christians, they look at everything that goes on and they simply assume that God is responsible for everything that happens. Of course, if that was true, Jesus wouldn't have told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because God's will is not always done in the earth. In fact, when God created the world, he gave Adam and Eve authority. They were his under rulers. They were his prince and princess. The Bible says this in John 14, 30 about Satan. Jesus said, the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. In Ephesians 2, it says the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. Second Corinthians 4, 4, it says, whose minds the God of this age is blinded. Satan is called the God of this age. First John chapter five says the whole world lies under the power of the wicked one. And people think, well, everything that happens, is just God, but that is not what the Bible teaches. Uh, this morning in, in my devotions, uh, I read some in the New Testament, some before the book of Psalms and some after the book of Psalms every, every day. And, and my, my before the book of Psalms, I'm, I'm in Job. And so I was reading several chapters in the, the book of Job. And uh, the, the, it is so interesting because Job blames God for everything that's happening. Right? That's what he does. Now, when, when God shows up and talks to Job, this is the first thing that, that God says to Job. He says, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So what God is saying is, Job, you don't have any knowledge. You don't know what you're talking about. And anybody who listens to you will walk in darkness. He says, you give counsel that is in darkness. Who is this? Who is this? Who is saying all these things that are not true? Job 9.22, it's all one thing. Therefore, I say, he destroys the blameless with the wicked. Now, Job is looking at his plight. Now, we have an advantage over Job. Job could not read the book of Job. Obviously, because it hadn't been written yet. But if he would have read, he would have found out that the Bible says that the devil went out and smote Job with sore boils from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. The devil had attacked his family. The devil had attacked his finances, right? But he doesn't know that. And so he says, if the scourge slays suddenly, he, God, laughs at the plight of the innocent. The, 
earth is given into the hands of the wicked. He, God, covers the faces of the judges. And if it is not he, if it isn't God, who else could it be? Well, I love the Spanish translation even better. It says, si no es el quien es y donde está. He says, if it's not God, who is it and where is he? Where is he? Because he didn't even know about the devil. He couldn't read the Bible. But you can. You and I can. And we need to recognize it is the devil that comes and attacks. Right? Uh, Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin. Thus death spread to all men because all sin. Now, even, even our insurance companies, they, they blame God. It's an act of God. It's an act of God. No, it's an act of the devil. You, 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 <laughs> you understand this. When the devil came, sin, death, sickness, disease, war, depression, prejudice, famine, pandemics, every bad thing you can think of showed up when the devil showed up. Before he was here, there was none of it. And then fortunately, we can find the end of the story. Revelation 20, verse 10 says, And the devil who deceives them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone with the beast and the false prophet are, and they are tormented day and night forever and ever. And by the way, notice the devil who deceived them. That's what he does. He comes to deceive. Jesus said he comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And the things that kill, steal, and destroy, they don't come from God. They come from the devil. But once the devil gets thrown into the lake of fire, Next chapter starts. This is what it says. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. And there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Isn't it interesting? Before he's here, no problems. After he's gone, no problems. Can you figure it out? <laughs> Can you figure it out? He is the problem. James 1 do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And of course, wherever the Bible tells us not to be deceived, we are the most deceived, right? It says every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from the Father of light in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, right? And again, Jesus said, the thief, he doesn't come except to steal, to kill and destroy. But I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. I like to just call this verse the great divide. Right here, you can see what God does and you can see what the devil does. And it's amazing how much that the devil does that God gets blamed for. Let me close with, uh, let's just say this is my first closing. All right. Luke 13, verse 10. He's in the synagogue and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years, was bent over and could not raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, woman, you're loose from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. The ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus is healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days in which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him and said, hypocrite, 
Doesn't each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it away to water? Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath? Now, notice what Jesus tells us here. Uh, Jesus tells us, first of all, every day is a good day for healing. But he says, it was Satan that bound her. Now, I... I, I I am not saying the Bible does not teach every sickness is a demon spirit. But ultimately, where it came in was when death and Satan and sin came into this world. Right? And notice, ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham? See, that's just an old covenant way of saying a child of God. Healing was an ought for her. She ought to be healed. And just like she ought to be healed, you ought to be healed. You ought to be delivered. You ought to have provision. It's part of the covenant, right? You're a son. You're a daughter of Abraham. And as believers today, we're to demonstrate Satan's defeat. Ephesians 3.20, to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all you could ask or think, according to the power that works in us. We're thinking we've got to talk God into doing something. But God says, I've already provided for you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Faith doesn't get God to do something. Faith responds and receives what God has already done. Again, if this room, we, forget, we get here about 7 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, and if, if this thing is, is pitch black, we do not call the electric company and say, send us electricity, send us electricity. Because all we've got to do is go and flip the switch. They've already sent the electricity. God's already sent everything that we need. He's already provided, the Bible says, all things that pertain to life and godliness. But we've got to turn the switch of faith on. We've got to receive by grace through faith, not because you deserve it, What's grace? What you don't deserve. By grace, through faith, we receive what has already been provided. All right, would you please bow your heads for just a moment? Uh, you know, the Bible, we, we often say, is all the answers to life. And it really does. But more than just having all the answers, the Bible's got the greatest questions. So I, I wanted to just read a few of them to you. In James, the fourth chapter, the, the question is very simple. It is, what is your life? What's your life? Think about your life a minute. It might as well say, what's your life? What would you answer? I, I know there's some people who would say, my, my life is my family. My, my, my life's my job. My life is a wreck. My life is happy. My life is going nowhere. Or my life is going somewhere. But the, the Bible answers the question, what is your life? And it says, your life is but a vapor that appears for a moment and it's gone. You know, you stepped out of a car today to walk into the building. And when you did, your breath was just a vapor. And it was there for a second and it was gone. And the Bible says, in light of eternity, the years that you're going to spend on this planet right now are just like a vapor. They're like nothing. When you've been in heaven for 10,000 years, it's like it's a day. It's like nothing. Your life is a vapor. 
Then the Bible asks this question, what will the end be? It's not like taking a vacation where you've got 10,000 places to choose from. The end, the Bible says, is multiple choice. It's just A and B. A is heaven. And that's the place where we spend eternity with God in his presence. B is hell. That's a place of torment, separated from God for all of eternity. No other options. And then the last question, Acts 16, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? You know, Jesus said you must be born again, which means you need to give him all of your heart and all of your life. Hold nothing back. Receive the forgiveness he offers you, and he died for you, and say, I am going to live for you. Today in this place right here and online, I know there's many of you, you've lived for God for decades. Others, you are away from God. At one time, you lived for the Lord, you've drifted away. Or it may be that you don't know where you stand with God, but the Bible says, know that you have everlasting life. And if you don't know you're forgiven right with God, you're not where you should be. So I'm going to ask everybody online, everybody here, if you can, please take one hand, put it over your heart, lift your other hand towards heaven, and we're going to pray together. I want you to make these words your own. Just say, oh God, I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe his blood paid for my sins. And I believe he rose again, victorious over death, sin, and the devil. And I give him all of my heart and all of my life. I surrender to Jesus. You are my Lord. You are my King. And I'm going to live for you. I thank you. You've heard my prayer. That my past is gone. That I am a part of your family, your kingdom, today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope what you heard today has been encouraging and given you new insight into the Word of God. We upload weekly. So join us again next time. Be blessed and enjoy your week.